Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in the listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia, and I, I too would like to welcome everyone uh, to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. Um, and the topic of today's program is Progress in the Treatment of Non-Hodgkin's Lymphoma, um, or NHL. And uh, I know this is an important topic to many of you on the call today. And indeed, this is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer as well as blood cancer organizations. And um, because of all of your interest in the program today and our collaboration, we have on the program over 409 participants. You come from all over the United States, from both rural, urban, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Ireland, the United Kingdom. So really a bit of a global call as well. Uh, today's program is supported by the Celgene Corporation and the Diane Athlete Fund, and we really thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have the best of the best speakers on this program, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. John Leonard. Dr. Leonard is a Richard T. Silver Distinguished Professor of Hematology and Medical Oncology. He's Associate Dean for Clinical Research, Wild Cornell Medicine. He's also Associate Director, Sondra and Edward Meyer Cancer Center at Wild Cornell Medicine, and Executive Vice Chair, Joan and Sanford I. Weil, Department of Medicine, while Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian. Um, and Dr. Leonard is going to be speaking about an overview of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, so providing you an overview, and also um, uh, discussing new treatment approaches. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Leonard. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Messner, and I want to thank uh, you and the team at Cancer Care for organizing this session. Uh, these are really a great series of programs, and I enjoy being able to participate in them. Uh, so what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is to give the audience uh, a bit of an overview of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and a touch on new treatment approaches, and I know my colleagues who will follow uh, we'll fill in some of the gaps and focus on uh, some of the areas that I am uh, uh, not able to get to due to time. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma is the largest category very broadly of lymphomas. Hodgkin lymphoma, the other uh, category, is a smaller as far as number of patients. Ninety percent of people with non-Hodgkin lymphoma have uh, a uh, B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma, whereas about 10% of people have what's called a T-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And so those are different in the prognosis and treatment. Very briefly, T-cell lymphomas have a number of different categories, the two biggest categories, one called cutaneous or skin T-cell lymphomas, and another that affects uh, the lymph nodes primarily called peripheral T-cell lymphomas, typically treated with chemotherapy of, of a variety of different sorts. The B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas are much more common. Again, about 90% of people with non-Hodgkin lymphoma have the B-cell type. And these fall into several different categories. In fact, there are about 40 different types of B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphomas. And I tend to group them into kind of three big groupings or, or uh, categories. 
one type being very broadly called indolent lymphoma, another type very broadly called aggressive lymphoma, and then a third category of a number of different uh, types of lymphoma that kind of have some similar and some different features from the indolent and the aggressive. So very briefly, aggressive lymphomas uh, are typically, uh, and, and all of the lymphomas I say for, or would say from the patient perspective have kind of good and bad features to them. The aggressive lymphomas tend to grow quickly, tend to have a scarier name, on the other hand, uh, and they're uh, typically treated with chemotherapy-based treatment, the usual treatment for an aggressive lymphoma, the most common type being diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, is treated with a combination of an antibody or an immune protein treatment called rituximab plus a chemotherapy regimen called CHOP, and this is given on an outpatient basis. So our CHOP is the standard treatment for most patients with aggressive lymphoma, uh, and um, so that is a typically manageable treatment, but it does have some side effects associated with it. On the other hand, the majority of patients treated with RCHOP for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma are cured of the lymphoma, meaning patients tend to go through the treatment and it goes away and doesn't come back. Now, if it does come back, which happens uh, a minority of the time, but still uh, enough that it can be, uh, it's not a rare event, uh, that these patients tend to go on and get more treatment with more chemotherapy, sometimes stem cell transplants, and also uh, are uh, eligible for a couple of the recently approved treatments for aggressive lymphoma. One of those is a category of drugs called CAR T-cells, and that's a group of uh, drugs that uh, are actually what some would term a living drug where immune cells from the patient are collected from the blood. They are engineered in the laboratory to, uh, to better fight lymphoma cells. They're reinfused into the patient like a fancy blood transfusion. And then they set up shop and they go after uh, the tumor cells. And so we've been doing what have been called stem cell transplants for many years, but CAR T-cells are a newer version of this. And these are therapies that can work where other treatments don't work very well. It's important to know that they do have side effects. They work overall long-term as, as of today in about a third of patients in relapsed or refractory aggressive diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Um, but they do have some side effects that can be significant, require hospitalization, and uh, are uh, not, not trivial in the scheme of things, but nonetheless for some patients can represent an exciting new option. So CAR T-cells are one big category of, of new drugs for aggressive lymphoma. On the other hand, uh, another drug that was approved just this week uh, is a drug called polituzumab vidotin, and it's basically polituzumab is an antibody, an immune protein, hooked to a basically a chemotherapy drug that, when infused into the patient, goes around the blood, binds to uh, the tumor cells primarily, and can internalize or go into the cell and kill the tumor cell. And so this has been recently approved in combination with a chemotherapy drug called bendamustine and, again, rituximab for patients with recurrent aggressive lymphoma. And this is primarily, I think, going to be used in patients who are older, more frail, who are not going to get very aggressive treatment. This presents another new option. And so that's just right off, the, hot off the presses just in the last day or so. And this drug, uh, last 
couple of days, I should say. This drug is something that uh, is being studied in a number uh, of different uh, settings. So that is the the nutshell of, I think, what's new in the aggressive lymphomas. I know my colleagues will come back to this. There is another type of lymphoma in the third category of kind of other lymphomas called mantle cell lymphoma. This is a type of lymphoma that tends to occur, though not always in older patients. It tends to be more of a chronic lymphoma where it responds to treatment but tends to come back. And it is treated with a variety of different chemotherapy drugs. Uh, that is one group. Some patients get stem cell transplants as part of their treatment. We have a number of drugs also approved for patients with relapsed mantle cell lymphoma, uh, such as uh, a drug called lenalidomide, which we'll come back to, also called Revlimid, an immune, immunomodulatory drug that works with the immune system and has other effects on the tumor cells. That is approved for mantle cell lymphoma. A drug called bortezomib or Velcade is approved. That works in a little bit different way. And then we have what are called Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. These are drugs that flick switches on the cells. Uh, there are pills that actually, uh, in a fairly high percentage of patients with mantle cell lymphoma, uh, can uh, induce a response and improve the, the, the patient's outcome. One of those is called ibrutinib uh, and, uh, or Imbruvica. Another one of those is called acalabrutinib or calquence, and these are Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors that are approved in mantle cell lymphoma. And then finally, I want to move to the other large category of lymphoma that some patients are uh, in the audience are dealing with. These are the indolent lymphomas. The most common of those is follicular lymphoma. Another type of indolent lymphoma is called marginal zone lymphoma. And then uh, there are also a drug, uh, a diagnosis called Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia or lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma or small lymphocytic lymphoma. So a number of different types, follicular lymphoma being most common of the indolent lymphomas. And these are lymphomas that uh, are different in that they tend to be slower growing. They tend to be more chronic lymphomas that people live with usually for many years. Most people, although not all, die with follicular lymphoma or indolent lymphomas rather than from them. So these are things that many people live a normal lifespan and manage it over time. I tend to call it kind of a hitchhiker lymphoma where it's along for the ride and you have to at times stick it into the trunk of the car. That said, for some people, these are more serious and more life-threatening. And so the good news is that we have a number of different treatments for this type of lymphoma. The most common uh, drug that's used is a drug called rituxan or rituximab. This is an antibody treatment uh, that is an immune protein that's injected intravenously, goes around, binds to the tumor cells, flicks switches on the tumor cells, and activates an immune response. And rituximab can be given by itself it can be given with chemotherapy, such as CHOP that I mentioned before for the aggressive lymphomas. Sometimes it's also given with a drug called bendamustine or trianda, another chemotherapy drug with a different set of side effects. These are commonly given as initial treatment. We have a newer antibody treatment called uh, Gaziva or obinutuzumab. This is a newer version of rituximab that is quite similar in its effectiveness, may work a little bit better, may have a little more in the way of side effects, but is in follicular lymphoma, I would say, more similar than different from rituximab. 
So patients get one of these treatments when they need treatment with follicular and other indolent lymphomas typically. That patients may go for a period of time without any treatment or watching and waiting, and that's because many patients can be observed without treatment and without any detriment to watching the patient and not treating it and delaying treatment. And the good part about delaying treatment is we get smarter as time goes on. Patients get a number of these treatments, whether it's rituximab alone, rituximab with chemotherapy, rituximab uh, or obinutuzumab with chemotherapy. So a couple of uh, things to, to end my session with are that we do have several new drugs recently approved in this setting. One is a drug called Revlimid or lenalidomide. This is, again, that immunomodulatory drug that modulates the immune system, works in concert with rituximab to make rituximab work better, and has some direct effects on the uh, tumor cells. And so a recent study that we were involved with suggested that lenalidomide plus rituximab in relapse patients was better than rituximab alone in that it controlled the tumor better and for a longer period of time, although it did have some more side effects associated with it. So that is a new option that's just been approved in the last couple of months. And then, again, patients often in the relapse setting get treated with chemotherapy, similar to the upfront setting. And then we have a number of new drugs called PI3 kinase inhibitors, and uh, these are drugs that, again, flick switches on a different switch called PI3 kinase that is involved with keeping the cells alive and making them resistant to chemotherapy. These are drugs that are approved for patients who have had a number of different treatments. There's one called idelalisib, another one called duvalisib. These are both oral uh, medications or pills. And then there's a third one called copenlisib, which is an intravenous version. And these all can be effective in patients who have been through other treatments where other treatments are not working quite as well. And so um, those drugs uh, are some of the newer drugs that are now approved in certain situations for patients with recurrent or relapsed follicular and other types of lymphoma. So I think the message I'll, I'll leave you with as I hand it over to Dr. Evans is that there are a number of new drugs. I think it's very exciting for those working in the field and more, more importantly, very exciting for patients that because of clinical trials and new work that we're doing, even in the last few months, we have new drugs approved for these uh, entities. And I think we're all very confident that this will give patients new options, things that can work when other treatments aren't working, and no doubt will improve long-term outcomes for patients uh, dealing with the, these uh, diseases. And so with this, I will pause and hand it over to Dr. Evans. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Leonard. That was really outstanding and it's a wonderful, really, um, start to this whole call. So thank you very much. I hope you know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Andrew Evans. Dr. Evans is Professor of Medicine, Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, Director of Lymphoma Program, Division of Blood Disorders, Associate Director for Clinical Services, Rutgers Cancer Institute of New Jersey, and Medical Director, Oncology Service Line, RWJ Barnabas Health. And Dr. Evans is going to be addressing the role of clinical trials, so how research contributes to your treatment options, and your comfort level with adherence, its important role in your treatment. And it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Evans. Thank you so much. 
Dr. Mesner. I echo Dr. Leonard's comments about the really great job of pulling this together and talking about all these important aspects in non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So in terms of uh, the majority of my, my few minutes I have is I will talk about clinical trials and then a little bit at the end about adherence. But uh, the question of how research contributes to your treatment options, the quick answer is an enormous amount. And Dr. Leonard just did a fantastic job of quickly running through the gamut of available and emerging options in the treatment of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And the long story short to each one of those drugs that was uh, described, each one went through a clinical trial process to garner its approval. Now, there's a lot of parts and pieces when we say clinical trials with the, each of these agents, and it often is a partnership, as many of these, these uh, novel therapeutics will come from the pharmaceutical companies, although sometimes they will come from the NCI or even sometimes uh, uncommonly will have a homegrown treatment, so to speak, from a university. But more often than not, it's with the pharmaceutical company, but it's a collaboration with academic institution as well as community oncology partners to ultimately enroll the studies. But of course, many of these agents, really most of them, if not all of them, start in a laboratory somewhere. And that can take a few years of analyzing, deciphering, finding what makes sense. And then as they enter a clinical trial, and, and I, I, again, I won't go through in great detail, but the three general groups we think about are, we, we talk about phases of clinical trial. We, we call it a phase one study, a phase two study, and a phase three study. Suffice it to say, there are many subgroups uh, within those different phases, but at the 50,000-foot big picture, a phase one study, generally speaking, is one where we are making sure we have a safe dose, that it's tolerable and, generally speaking, safe for, for patients. Now, that's not to say we don't start to get a little early look at efficacy. In other words, how well does it work? Uh, work? We, we do start to glean that, but the primary objective from a phase one is what's the safety? Then it will often move on to a phase two, where the primary goal of that is more how well does it work? And, and, and usually you have a hypothesis, we'll say, or, or a goal or an expectation to prove that that's true or not. And the hope is, of course, it's still safe, as was shown in the phase one study. And then sometimes, not always, a medication, a drug, one of these new drugs, will go to a phase three before it garners its FDA approval. And what a phase three usually is, at least in many of these lymphoma situations, is one that you're comparing often the new agent to whatever the standard of care is. And and so those are the general categories. Now, just some of the subtext or sublevels to some of these studies are sometimes this can be an agent done by itself as a single agent going up against um, or comparing it against uh, other single agents. But sometimes it can also be done in combination. Dr. Leonard uh, uh, elucidated the one medication, polituzumab vedotin, that was just literally FDA approved two days ago. And that was one that was tested in a combination. It did, it did go through single agent testing, but it was decided, at least for its initial approval, to use it in combination with chemotherapy. And they combined, uh, compared it, I should say, versus chemotherapy and rituximab. So that's, there can often be mixing and matching. And as, as we learn, have learned over the years, uh, is a lot of the research that has helped uh, understand these medications are 
really understanding the complexity of cancer cells. And it very often is where there's not one silver bullet, but as we're, we've actually known for many years with chemotherapy, it often can take or need a collection of different agents. And, and that's another important point as we talk about when I mentioned phase one and phase two is sometimes you might be adding a new drug to a standard drug. And that could still be called a phase one study because anytime you're adding something new that you're not 100% sure of the safety and efficacy, it'll run through a clinical trial. And uh, then, of course, the question, is, as I alluded to, is, well, when does it garner FDA approval? I think we all want uh, these to move through the system as quickly as possible. But at the same time, we, we do always a little bit of caution. You don't want to move too fast because uh, we certainly don't want an agent to be approved that has uh, unrecognized or underappreciated side effects and causes harm. So it's a little bit of a balance between trying to move these agents through the system with companies, with academia, w working with the FDA, with the government to make sure that it's safe and effective. So it really is an exciting time because um, Dr. Leonard uh, alluded to a lot of the options being this what's called immunotherapy, whether CAR T-cell therapy and targeted therapy. As, as these agents become approved either in combination or as a single agent, well, we want to learn how can we make other combinations or other sequences that are smart and are best for the patient. And the challenge I'll, I'll just add is, is also mentioned is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is fairly heterogeneous. And as the ag agents become approved, they rarely are approved for all lymphomas. It usually is initially approved for a certain specific subtype, let's say diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or mantle cell lymphoma or T-cell lymphoma. But even though it garners that first niche subtype approval, we often don't stop there. We learn that, okay, it works in mantle cell lymphoma. Well, oh, wow, maybe it also works in follicular lymphoma. So you don't have to necessarily start over because you often already have the safety part figured out, but you'll we'll keep plugging away after an agent's initial approval in a subtype, whether by itself or in combination, what other subtype could it possibly work on in. So that's clinical trials in, in a nutshell. Just to quickly talk about adherence and its importance in terms of the role in, in treatment, and as you can imagine, it's very important. And now when we talk about adherence, that sometimes comes under the auspices more of oral therapies. Dr. Leonard had described some of the agents that are oral targeted agents. In other words, not intravenous in the clinic, but write a prescription, take it home, but still need close monitoring. These, these often, uh, at, a, at a minimum, will need monthly evaluations and blood tests to make sure everything's being tolerated well. And what we do know, even from looking at intravenous therapies, that if you miss too many doses, that sometimes can affect the effectiveness. Now, certainly there are times where a dose or doses need to be skipped or reduced, and absolutely that should be in close conversation with your oncologist. But generally speaking, as you, whether you're managing blood pressure or diabetes, uh, cancer is the same way, and, and adherence to the different treatments is a very important component of your treatment, as well as not just the the actual cancer treatment. Often, as, as you probably know, there are supportive care medications that are taken. Some of these agents, even the novel targeted agents, can still cause infection. So you may be on prophylactic or preventive antibiotics to take, or there'll be other 
uh, medicines when you first start a new treatment. There can be something called tumor lysis. So there might be medications that are taken to help prevent something called tumor lysis. So when we say adherence, yes, of course, that is relevant to the actual cancer therapy, but really everything. And you know, it's sometimes hard in a busy clinic, but we always try and do it, and I'm sure your doctors do too, is you try and reconcile the medications every visit. And what are you taking? What, are you, what aren't you taking, et cetera? So it's all very important. And the last thing I'll, I'll mention is obviously the oncologist will often work with the pharmacist, um, especially with some of the newer medications. There can be what we call drug-drug interactions, and sometimes ones that we don't appreciate, and often not serious, but sometimes serious. And so really understanding what are the interactions between not just the oncology drugs, but even sometimes uh, from some of those supportive care drugs or a blood pressure medication, a diabetes medication. So definitely uh, I'll, I'll kind of wrap that under the adherence too. It's just understanding all the different medications, including supplements. Um, you want to make sure you're telling your doctor everything that you're taking or not taking for that matter, and just so everything can get figured out and put on the best track. But I'll stop there and say thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Evans. That was really wonderful and very comprehensive as well. And just um, I, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, but just lots of material. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. A.J. Gopal. Um, and Dr. Gopal is a professor of medicine, Division of Medicine, Oncology, University of Washington. He's a member of Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. He also is Clinical Research Director and Associate Medical Director, Hematology and Hematologic Malignancies, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. And Dr. Gopal is going to address managing treatment side effects and communicating with your healthcare team about uh, progress in the treatment of NHL as well as your quality of life um, concerns and issues. I'm going to turn this program over to Dr. Gopal. Uh, thank you, Dr. Messner. I'd also like to uh, give my thanks uh, for the invitation as well as all the great work that uh, your group, Cancer Care, does uh, for patients out there suffering with cancer. Uh, so for my uh, segment, I would like to talk a little bit about management of treatment side effects. But <clears throat> as you've heard on this call, I, there are many uh, exciting new options, uh, treatment options for folks uh, suffering with lymphoma. And I think even before we start talking about management of side effects, particularly for the indolent lymphomas, the slow-growing kind of, uh, Dr. Leonard uh, described it as a hitchhiker lymphoma. I usually describe these as the nuisance lymphomas that are really going to just be a nuisance, but we can deal with them in most situations. Part of managing side effects really is having that open dialogue regarding treatment options with your oncologist and treatment team. because. Gratifyingly, there are many treatment options nowadays for uh, these lymphomas, particularly these nuisance lymphomas, uh, and it's, it's uh, not completely clear that one is superior to another, uh, so it allows one to have a discussion about whether one might prefer a more intensive but shorter duration of therapy uh, approach or whether which might have more side effects for the short term but then would give the opportunity to be off treatment for a while and potentially have little to no side effects or whether one might opt for taking something that might be more of a pill approach uh, which on any given day might have less side effects 
but uh, one could have those low-level side effects for a long period of time. So really at the very beginning, in terms of management of side effects, it's being engaged with your oncologist and treatment team to discuss the pros and cons of different options uh, when there are different choices. And I think along the same lines, uh, potentially even clinical trials, uh, which might offer um, even other uh, treatment approaches that might have lower side effects or might be expected to have lower side effects. So from the very beginning, uh, one uh, should be engaged with their treatment team uh, in anticipation and education about side effects. And uh, as Dr. Evans mentioned, um, the nurses and pharmacists are really a key part of this for the education component about side effects. Um, once a plan is decided, and particularly in the situation of the more aggressive lymphomas where the approaches are usually more straightforward, uh, there are, though there are many options, there is a, usually a more typical sequence of these options, uh, it's understanding what to expect and having uh, education about the treatment regimen, meeting with nurse or pharmacist, and each cancer center does it probably a little differently about who does the teaching about the chemotherapy, but which side effects are ones to worry about and which ones are not, and maintaining that open dialogue with often your nurse uh, regarding which side effects and you're having and not being bashful about sharing those because many times we can address these and I often tell my patients that the treatments don't work any better if we make you sick. Uh, it actually works better if we don't make you sick because we're more likely to get through the treatment and as Dr. Evans said, uh, if you stay on your treatment on schedule, uh, typically the results are better in the end. So. Um, really uh, keeping that discussion uh, with your treatment team uh, about the side effects, and many times we can help uh, address those. Uh, there was another uh, point that was uh, made uh, by Dr. Evans about drug-drug uh, interactions, and this is particularly important with many of these newer agents, uh, particularly the pill-type treatments, uh, can have some interactions with other therapies. And sometimes we'll find that the other uh, providers for our patients um, may not realize what else they're taking. So really letting your other doctors know what you're taking. And sometimes the side effects can be related to the interaction between some of the other medicines that people might be taking. So really um, being aware uh, and educating your other providers about um, uh, what, you're, uh, being, uh, what you're receiving from your oncologist. And then finally, I mean, if the, if the side effects are getting to the point where they're really not manageable, having an open dialogue with your oncologist about what other options might be available uh, or could there be some kind of dose adjustment that might be made, need to be made uh, with your treatment. So it's, it's really a lot about communication and dialogue and education uh, regarding management of uh, side effects. And this really dovetails with the point on uh, communicating with your health care team. Um, I think you've heard throughout uh, the presentations uh, today that uh, communication is important. And communication regarding the progress in lymphoma is critical because we have so many options now. Uh, uh, over the, certainly the course of my career, uh, it's become increasingly complicated with so many options, but these are fabulous for patients because we have these options that are improving the survival and improving the quality of life of patients and having that open discussion uh, with your provider. 
Um, many times uh, there's a lot of great information out there uh, that uh, my patients uh, get uh, from calls like this, from other very reputable sources such as American Cancer Society, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, Lymphoma Research Foundation, and um, they come in with questions about different treatment options and trials. Uh, I usually tell my patients to just keep a uh, list on the fridge of questions uh, so they don't forget when they come in. And uh, we go over these things, um, and particularly with the indolent lymphomas, where there's a lot more time usually to kind of hem and haw and think about which treatment might be best and explore things. Um, uh, bringing these ideas in, uh, asking about clinical trials, I always encourage my patients to ask about what trial might be appropriate, particularly at any time that there uh, is a change in treatment or a new treatment, um, really uh, not uh, feeling like that can't be brought up with uh, your oncologist uh, and asking if any of these studies are appropriate for you. Um, uh, and asking as you're learning on this call about what treatments might be available. We've heard that really just over the last weeks, there's been a new approval for indolent lymphoma, uh, namely a drug called lenalidomide, uh, and new approval for aggressive lymphoma, a drug called polituzumab vidotin. And uh, so it's important really at every visit to, uh, if something's going to change and a plan's going to change, to have that open dialogue with your oncologist about uh, the progress in lymphoma, what new options might be available, and what uh, might be appropriate for you. Um, I'm going to really just wrap it up there so we can have enough time for questions and uh, turn things now back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gopal. That was wonderful as well. Excellent. And um, and uh, we do have lots of time for questions. I'm just, um, please, everyone, start preparing your questions. Some of you have sent them in already. That's those of you who are thinking about questions. I'm going to say a few words about cancer care services, and then we're going to take your questions. So um, stand by. Stay on. Um, so um, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide free support services to people living with cancer and information referral. Um, we also offer these workshops, um, and we do offer online support groups and telephone support groups as well. People find those very helpful, and those are those the online support groups. I think we have about 138 of them, and those are actually not time sensitive, so they're you can post any time of the day or night. Many people with busy schedules lots of responsibilities in their lives, just taking care of yourself, need to have a place where they can just post something, and they are all facilitated by trained, master social trained oncology social workers. Um, and we also do online support services to people as well. We can talk you can, uh, online, you can post to people back and forth, you can post a question on our website if you want to with one of our social workers. It's all password protected and um, and so that um, you need not worry about um, the, your privacy issues and things like that. Um, and um, we also provide uh, financial and practical assistance. We have a copay foundation as well. And so um, there are lots of different resources that you can um, certainly access from Cancer Care. And if we don't have it, um, we will then refer you to another source to, to get help. If there's so many organizations out there, it's hard for you all to keep track of them all. Um, and I think that uh, we also have publications and, of course, a website. So with that being said, we now have time for questions. So I'm going to um, invite, um, uh, have all of our speakers on board for the Q&A period of this call. And I see um, we already have some questions. So I'm going to have um, Sonia explain to all of you how to queue up for questions so that you all have a chance to ask a question. Sonia? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than 1 on your touchdown telephone. 
If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit a question by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then one. And we have a question from our online participants. Um, and I guess I'm going to give this question to Dr. Leonard to start. Um, how does marginal zone lymphoma differ from CLL, SLL? So marginal zone lymphoma is one of the indolent lymphomas. Uh, other indolent lymphomas include follicular lymphoma, CLL and SLL, and uh, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, also called lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma. Marginal zone lymphoma tends to come in three different types. One type is called nodal marginal zone lymphoma, where it ends up being predominantly in the lymph node. A second type is called splenic marginal zone lymphoma, where it tends to be in the spleen, the bone marrow, and the blood, and less in the lymph nodes, presenting more commonly as issues with blood counts. And then a third type called malt lymphoma, or mucosa-associated lymphoid tissue, that occur, tends to occur where the body comes in contact with the outside world, areas like the skin, the lung, the gastrointestinal tract, the bladder, the, the breast tissue, uh, the areas around the eyes, the conjunctiva, uh, and other areas. So these are all in the family of indolent lymphomas. I would say that if they're in multiple places, they tend to be treated like the uh, other indolent lymphomas with drugs like rituximab or rituxan, uh, sometimes alone, sometimes with chemotherapy. If they are in one location, sometimes radiation is a, a, an appropriate treatment. They can also be monitored without treatment uh, in some cases. And then a number of the newer drugs can also work in marginal zone lymphomas. Uh, the drugs for marginal zone lymphomas tend to overlap, and the treatment regimens tend to overlap with the treatment regimens for other indolent lymphomas, although that's not 100% the case. Uh, drugs that tend to work in the marginal zone lymphomas also include uh, lenalidomide or revlimid, the PI3 kinase inhibitors uh, like idelalisib, duvalisib, uh, and copenlisib that I mentioned earlier. Uh, also another kinase or inhibitor or switch inhibitor, I would say, uh, called uh, ibrutinib that I referenced earlier also uh, can work in marginal zone lymphoma. But in general, um, the treatment is pretty individualized depending on the situation, but in general these are approached like the other indolent lymphomas. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and we have a question from one of our um, online participants. Um, and um, oh, this question is for um, Dr. Um, Evans. Um, so um, any new murine mouse-free monoclonal antibody treatments in the horizon? What was that? Any new what type of antibodies? Any new um, murine, M-U-R-I-N-E, mouse-free monoclonal antibody treatments in the horizon. Yeah, and actually Dr. Gopal might be one uh, to even add on to this answer as some of the original antibodies uh, emanated out of the hutch in, in Seattle, some of the very first murine. But, you know, the the quick answer is, is not as many pure murine. Um, partly is due to tolerability and, and efficacy. A lot, just like rituximab, tends to be what we call chimeric in that um, there's part human, part mouse, and that's partly based on tolerability. When a murine antibody, you, um, pure murine antibody is injected, it, you, the human body can develop 
antibodies to the antibodies, so to speak. So, so that's something we try to avoid. Parenthetically, there is the murine parent to rituximab is actually still available as a radioimmunotherapy drug. It's one of the initial ones that's, uh, for a number of reasons, has, has uh, gone uh, not used quite as much over the years, but it actually is still available. Um, it's called uh, ipratumumab tioxetan, or the short name is Zevalin. It's actually a one-time dose that is still available for certain subsets of patients that's got a murine component to it. So the, the last thing I'll add is there, there are just a host of other antibodies, uh, murine or not, that are out there. A, a really a neat construct I'll, I'll uh, mention that we're studying here at Rutgers in clinical trials. I know it's national, and I think I believe Cornell has this too. They're called bispecific antibodies. Uh, there one there there is a bispecific antibody that's FDA approved in acute leukemia, but there are several that are being studied. It, it really is I, I kind of think of it as what I'll call an off-the-shelf immunotherapy, where CAR T cell is one where we take T cells as was mentioned from the body and reinject it. This is a bispecific where it has one antibody, such as to a B cell, and then the bi the second uh, attachment is for CD3. So basically to attract T-cells, existing T-cells in the patient's body to the lymphoma. So these are not yet FDA-approved. They are actively going through clinical trials. Um, they're through the safety phase. They're mainly now in the efficacy testing. I don't know if Dr. Gopal had anything to add to the murine component. Yeah, I would just concur. I think there are fewer purely murine antibodies that are being developed. Most of them are mostly human, maybe slightly murine chimeric antibodies like rituximab or uh, fully humanized antibodies. And there's a kind of a code in the name of the generic name of where you can sort out whether these are chimeric or they're humanized. Um, and the main concern with a murine antibody uh, is that you can develop an immune response against it. Excellent. Well, this is very, very informative. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, and um, a question for Dr. Gopal. Um, so um, where does myelodysplasia fit into the group of lymphomas, leukemias, or does it? Well, uh, so myelodysplasia is really a different uh, situation than lymphomas. Uh, it's a primary bone marrow problem. It's sort of like a pre-acute leukemia. Unfortunately, sometimes the treatments for lymphoma uh, or really any cancer, uh, because many of the traditional chemotherapies are DNA damaging, uh, they can increase the chance of getting another cancer. And the most common cancer that we worry about in most situations is this thing called myelodysplasia or uh, myelodysplastic syndrome, MDS. And uh, that is really a completely different set of diseases than lymphoma, but uh, unfortunately, sometimes and rarely, rarely, thankfully, uh, is a, a complication of uh, the more traditional type chemotherapies for uh, lymphoma. Excellent. Thank you. And, um, another question um, for Dr. Leonard. Um, again, these are, are there new treatments available for CTCL? So CTCL is one of the T-cell lymphomas uh, that we uh, referenced earlier. These are T-cell lymphomas that uh, affect the skin primarily. T-cells, again, are the less common type of lymphoma. 
Uh, and T-cell lymphomas can involve different areas, but the cutaneous or skin T-cell lymphomas tend to involve the skin, and then over time can sometimes involve the blood uh, and uh, the lymph nodes. So there, these are agents, these are treatment, uh, this is a type of lymphoma that is often treated with what we call topical therapies, certain uh, types of creams, sometimes radiation, certain light treatments are, are often used, and sometimes patients are treated with uh, different uh, topical, or I'm sorry, uh, oral treatments. There are uh, oral chemotherapy taken by mouth that can work in the setting. Uh, there are a couple of other more biologic drugs that are taken typically by mouth, although there are a few different uh, categories of these that work in different ways to go after the tumor cells. And more recently, uh, an antibody drug conjugate, a drug called brentuximab bedotin that uh, is similar to the other one we referenced earlier, uh, that is, uh, but it has a different target. So it's an antibody or immune protein uh, hooked to a chemotherapy drug, in this case, something called CD30, which is on uh, T cells. So this is uh, recently available uh, not only for Hodgkin lymphoma, where it was uh, first developed, but in other T cell lymphomas, including cutaneous T cell lymphomas. And then there are a number of different clinical trials looking at new drugs in this setting as well. Well, thank you. That's excellent. And actually, I should let people know that we do have a, actually a whole program just on this topic on Monday, June 17th um, uh, from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. So you'll be getting information about all these upcoming programs, but that's one of them. And so um, for that caller who might want, although I have to say, Dr. Leonard, very comprehensive, I must say, but nevertheless, there is a whole hour program on, the, on this other program, so please, on those topics, so please um, feel free to listen in on it if, you, if your schedule allows you. And if your schedule doesn't allow you, I should just let you all know that these programs are recorded and they're available on telephone replay or as a podcast uh, within a couple of days of the program. Okay. So now um, we have another question from one of our online participants. Um, so... For Dr. Um, Evans, are the treatment procedures for indolent and aggressive NHL similar? Yes and no. So, uh, meaning, yes, there are some similar paradigms in that um, sometimes for indolent lymphomas, especially newly diagnosed, we may combine an antibody, CD20 antibody, whether it be rituximab or binutuzumab with chemotherapy. And that same kind of construct or paradigm is actually essential, especially for newly diagnosed uh, aggressive B-cell lymphomas at least. So usually it is rituximab combined with a chemotherapy backbone. Uh, there's a one very commonly uh, people will probably recognize called CHOP, the abbreviation, or EPOC, and there are other ones. So those are similar paradigms, but they're also for indolent, the goal uh, is very is they're very treatable, meaning very high chance to go into remission and hopefully stay there as many years as possible. But typically, not what we say curable. It tends to go away, come back. We'll treat it again. Hopefully, go back into remission. Um, uh, we'll kind of frame it a bit as a more chronic. And so, less and less over time. I think we're trying to find situations where we can actually spare chemotherapy. Um, and sometimes that even includes using an antibody by itself, um, rituximab or even obinutuzumab, uh, as well as really now some novel novel agents. Dr. Leonard was 
instrumental in helping garner FDA approval, at least in the relapse setting, of an uh, agent called lenalidomide in combination with rituximab for follicular lymphoma that has relapsed. It's actually also an option, even though it's not FDA approved, for newly diagnosed patients. And so really for indolent lymphoma, as been alluded to, um, we kind of want our cake and eat it too in terms of remission, but kind of do it with as least amount of therapy as possible. Quality of life is critically important. And not to say we don't think of quality of life in aggressive lymphomas, but the overarching goal for most is cure, um, complete remission and cure. And so that almost always includes um, chemotherapy and its backbone, where I would say slowly but surely over time we're uh, using or at least trying to use less chemotherapy for indolent lymphomas. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And we have a telephone question. Um, Sonia? Thank you. And our next question comes from Beth M. Your line is now open. Yes. What is the difference between angioimmunoblastic aggressive and indolent um, angioimmunoblastic? What characteristics? What difference? What are the differences? Thanks. Thank you for that question. Um, Dr. Gopay, can you answer that question? Address that question? Okay. Uh, so, uh, Beth, thank you for calling. Uh, so, angioimmunoblastic, and I'm, I think you're probably referring to angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma, uh, you know, this is one of, typically we think of that as an aggressive T-cell lymphoma. So, uh, if that's what you're referring to, we generally think of this as something that is a aggressive lymphoma within the T-cell uh, category and um, we typically treat those patients with uh, um, aggressive chemotherapy, and there's some uh, data saying that in certain patients in the right situations, there can also be a benefit for uh, doing a stem cell transplant. Um, so uh, uh, some, certainly even within the spectrum of aggressive lymphomas, sometimes these things can uh, behave differently. Um, but uh, I... If I'm uh, understanding your question correctly, in general, the angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphomas, uh, we generally treat them like aggressive lymphomas. So um, I don't know if my colleagues would want to chime in uh, or, Beth, if you have some other clarification on that question, uh, please please let me know. No, I'll just add, I totally, totally agree. It, it, every now and then, there is a angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphoma that will act a little more indolent, and you can use immunosuppressive drugs like cyclosporin and, and not use aggressive chemotherapy. But I, those are uncommon, I would say, number one. And number two, I, I don't know of any, like, testing, um, even including genetic testing, genomic testing, that would kind of tell us. It more is like the natural history, and you get a sense of that. But that really is a minority of cases. Excellent. And... Um Actually, um, Sonia, we need to check with Beth and be sure this answers her question. Okay, open the line. And it doesn't have to be an aggressive type. So this is what I guess I had CHOP, and this is what I guess what you're saying is they always treat it with CHOP, but it can have different characteristics later on. You don't have to relapse. 
Okay, thank you. Uh, cor correct. Uh, it sounds like your question was that uh, whether this can be cured with aggressive uh, treatment, um, and that is true. We certainly, for most with angioimmunoblastic T-cell lymphomas, we do try to treat with curative intent with CHOP chemotherapy or something similar like to that, and sometimes with stem cell transplant and first remission. And as Dr. Evans said, there is a rare variant that we can use more immunosuppressive type drugs to try to treat the T-cells, the abnormal T-cells, or suppress the abnormal T-cells. Well, thank you, Beth. That was a wonderful question, and we hope that's helpful, and we hope you'll take this information back to Treating Healthcare Team, and, and that's true for everyone on the call, the questions that you ask, so you'll take them back to Treating Healthcare Team, and, and, and of course, they know you very well, and they and you can incorporate all of this into, into, your, um, into asking the most informed questions you can and getting the best information you can from your, your Treating Healthcare Team. So thank you. Um, so, um, so I have another question here, and this one... For Dr. Leonard, my doctors advised um, to manage my NHL using a watch and wait approach, but my family constantly asks me why I am not getting it treated right away. Do you have any advice on how to talk to my family about this watch and wait concept? And I well, I think uh, that's so. The concept of watch and wait, <coughs> excuse me, is based on the idea that for patients with indolent lymphoma. So we basically treat disease, any medical problem, whether it's heart trouble or lung trouble or diabetes or joint problems, to either get rid of it, to feel better, or to live longer. And if you have an indolent lymphoma that's not causing you any problems, where you feel fine, it just happens to be there, it was found one way or another, but is not bothering you to the extent that you have any symptoms, and is not likely to do so soon in the judgment of, of your doctor, then, as we said earlier, these indolent lymphomas are hard to get rid of, but and people live a very, very long time with them, uh, most of the time. Uh, and um, the fact is that various clinical trials comparing early or immediate treatment uh, versus later treatment when the disease uh, starts to give some problems that prompts treatment, the patient's not feeling as well or the nodes are getting bigger, show that the long-term outlook, meaning how long people live, is the same. And so for many people, the idea of watch and wait, if the disease isn't bothering you, there's no real reason to, uh, to treat it in many different cases. And so that's why we watch and wait. And the fact of the matter is that that is a very common approach in various types of indolent lymphoma, including follicular lymphoma. However, as you allude to, it is not how we typically approach cancer. People are used to thinking of tumors as something that you have to find when it's small and jump on and treat it aggressively. And so the concept of finding a tumor that you're just going to keep an eye on and, and let it either sit there or let it slowly grow um, doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but in fact, that's what the literature says. That's what all of the studies say 
for a, a group of people where that is deemed to be appropriate. And I would reassure your family as best you can. And this is something that is hard for people to understand unless um, they uh, go through it with you, um, that, um, that that's a very reasonable approach. So this is something all of us on the call and hundreds of other doctors that take care of patients with this type of lymphoma do this all the time where we monitor patients. And that should be reassuring to patients and their families in the right situation. I would encourage your, your, uh, you uh, tricks that can be helpful if this is hard for either you to understand or your family is to perhaps bring them to your doctor's appointment and have their doctor, your doctor explain it to them because it takes some time to kind of get your arms around this unusual approach. There are many other patients out there that are following the same approach. I'm sure there are many people on this call who are watching and waiting, either haven't had any treatment at all or had a treatment and are now watching and waiting. Um, and there are books on lymphoma and patient education programs that talk about this all the time. So um, those are a couple of different tricks, but I, I would assure your family that um, this is a very common and accepted uh, approach for certain patients with these types of lymphomas because of the fact that there's really no value in early treatment because patients tend to do very well uh, in this category. And so there's no rush to do anything because the long-term outcome for this group of patients tends to be quite good. And um, Actually, I just, and that's um, incredibly important. And I, I think for our caller also, you can um, have a family meeting with a physician, I believe, and, and you have to schedule it and explain why you're having a meeting. And that might also help them not just hear it from you, but also hear it from the treating healthcare team as well. So that could be a help in terms of your coping with your family around this issue. So does that does that work at all, Dr. Bonnie? <laughs> Is that an approach that sometimes you use or, or it, Sure. It, I think that's a great idea. Yes. So sometimes so that would might help as well. Okay. Um and we have another telephone question. Thank you. And our next question comes from Dennis G. Your line is now open. This is a question for Dr. Leonard. It's a two-part question. First of all, what is the spelling of this newest drug just approved a couple days ago? And secondly, what is its effect on decreasing platelets of me as a refractory mantle cell patient? So a couple parts to that question. The first part of the question um, relates to the drug that was recently approved. The name of the drug uh, is called polatuzumab, P-O-L-A-T-U-Z-U-M-A-B, and then a new word, vedotin, V as in Victor, E-D-O-T-I-N, polatuzumab vedotin. On the other end, if you you know if you use Google or something like that, you can use FDA approved drug, and I'm sure it'll pop right up in the news section. And certainly, um, it's it's in the news a bit now. I want to be very careful. This drug was approved for patients with recurrent diffuse large B cell lymphoma. So that is one of the aggressive lymphomas, the most common type. It is not approved for patients with mantle cell lymphoma. So it is not a drug that we typically, based on the data, um, would give for, for mantle cell lymphoma. 
So it's the, the challenge with lymphoma for patients is that when drugs are approved, certain drugs work for many different types of lymphoma. Certain drugs work for one or two types of lymphoma. And certain drugs are approved for one type but might be useful to try in other types. But insurance and other medical coverage may or may not cover it. So I would say in this case, case polituzumab, Vidotin is not something I have used or would use in mantle cell lymphoma at this point in time, although it may be something that uh, could be studied in the future. The main side effects of this particular drug uh, include um, what we call neuropathy, um, which is numbness and tingling of the fingers and toes, as well as low blood counts uh, and a few other things. So um, it is something that could be used in patients with low platelets, but would have to be used very carefully. But again, it's approved for patients with recurrent large cell lymphoma in combination with chemotherapy. Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. Um, this has been an extraordinary call. I want to just, I want to thank all of you. You've been wonderful. Um, and uh, um, I actually also want to thank all of you who've queued up and asked such great questions. I mean, these are remarkable questions that really added to the call, both on the telephone and online as well. Um, and um, I also um, I want to thank all of you who've been listening as well. Um, and uh, and so, um, and I also just want to remind all of you that I know many of you still have questions, and some of you who ask questions, I just want to comment to all of you as well. Please take the answers that you've gotten from you know the questions you asked, and go back to your treating healthcare team. And for those of you who have yet to have your questions answered, um, please actually. Um, I got to give you some resources to go to. So first of all, of course, there's a lot of organizations that have partnered with us today on this call, and so I want to remind all of you to be sure and actually, um, uh, you know, utilize those resources. Um, uh, there are a lot of blood cancer organizations on the call today, and there's some, and we'll be giving you in your evaluation. You'll be getting, of course, uh, a listing of all the um, uh, upcoming, um, uh, you know programs we have, but also you'll be getting a listing of all of the resources that we mentioned during the call and some resources that have not been mentioned, um, so that uh, please do take advantage of all of those resources to, to get your questions answered. And if some of you, I know, we want you to go to credible, resor re credible resources for your information. So we also always recommend, of course, from the Research Foundation, they have lots of information um, for for you, um, and that's, that's the research that's listed there. There are also the Leukemia Lymphoma Society as well. These are very well-established blood cancer organizations, and there are many others that you'll be getting as resources as well. And for those of you who would like to pursue further help from Cancer Care, you can simply contact us at Cancer Care um, for that, and you'll be getting that resource as well. Most importantly, as we conclude the call today, we don't want anyone to feel that you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of a community of support, a neighborhood of support. Call us anytime. Email us anytime. We're here to help you. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.